Hello, everyone. This is Michael with the Left Unread Podcast. As you know, we are here to uplift black and brown voices, to talk about black and brown books, and to be an absolute menace into the publishing industry and make space for everyone. And as always, I am here with my co-host, Lonnie. How you doing today, Lonnie? I'm doing well. I'm super, super excited today. We have Melissa Blair, so um, I'm definitely ready to get into it. Which I'm very excited about. Um, for those of you who don't know Melissa, uh, she is the author of A Broken Blade and The Halfling Saga, um, which I'm very excited to talk about. And I just finished the third book. Melissa, I'm so angry with you. <laughs> Actually, the first person I've talked to inside my editor who has read the book. So, <laughs> well, I'm excited. I was just in a live, um, and Elle was actually there, and I was just teasing them that I finished it and they haven't yet. <laughs> Ellie's also going to be so angry with me when they read that. <laughs> Absolutely. I think I was angrier after the second one, though. I feel like I was really angry at the end of that book. I really don't feel like that ending is that bad. Hopefully, I'll make up with it in book four, but who knows? Some people are going to be real mad with book four. I think you will. I, I was telling Lonnie before you got here that you are one of the uh, the best writers that I know. Like your writing is immaculate. Oh, thank you. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yes, he really did say that. I wasn't expecting such high praise. <laughs> well, for what it's worth, I meant every word, uh, which kind of brings me to what I want to talk about here. We like to start every episode by just asking the author to, in their own words, tell us a little bit about their book. Uh, yeah, my books are about a half human, half fae assassin who is struggles with having to work with oppression of a tyrant king um, who's taken over the lands of her indigenous peoples. And she deals with a lot of issues of being inculcated in, in having to actively be an oppressor herself and then finally takes a stand and decides she no longer wants to do that. And she's find some discoveries over in the Phelan where some indigenous fae are still living and and mayhem begins. That is so close to how I was talking about the book before you got here. That's so funny. <laughs> that was great. Thank you. I mean, I've had some time. To, like, I do have like two separate ones, I would say. My elevator pitch depends on who is listening. If I feel like they don't read a lot of like anti-colonial fantasy it's slightly different and i feel like i kind of mm. sneak attack them but that's funny um it's, it's so interesting that you mentioned the colonial aspect because that's the first thing i wanted to talk about because i think i even messaged you when i read a broken blade one of the first things that stood out and one of the things that stood out the most to me was just how unapologetically you approach that conversation about colonialism, indigeneity, yeah. and the tension of like resisting colonialism while often while also having to be a part of it because mm-hmm. she has no choice. Um, and I, I, I don't even know how to describe how it made me feel as a black person in America because um, that's that's the reality of of black and brown people, especially indigenous people being in America. Um, what is it that you wanted your readers to take away from that conversation? Well, it. I find it so interesting that you found that that was so fronted because that's that's how the Halfling Saga happened. So I was reading all of these fantasy romance books that were taking off on TikTok. And this would have been like 2020 into 2021. Um, back when book talk was like, it was much smaller. There weren't any, very many people talking about like more diverse reads at the time. And the fantasy romance genre, subgenre in particular, was super, super popular, but also super, super white. Mm-hmm. 
and I was reading these books and I love them. I got why so many people were reading them while we're all locked inside. Um, but the thing that I found is so many of them were like, I was actively like needing to cheer or turn off my indigenous brain. That was like, oh, well, this main character is a colonizer. <laughs> like, <laughs> like uh, there's some references to the people who used to live here before. And it seems like this person's ancestors is the part of the reason they don't live here anymore. <laughs> so I'm just going to turn that off so I can enjoy the narrative. And I just had to keep on turning that part of my brain off a lot to kind of enjoy these stories. And I finally was like, you know what? I just want to try writing one just to see if I can kind of um, use all the same ingredients. Like I like using the sandbox metaphor. Like I want to play in the same sandbox that all these other series were playing in, but I just wanted to do it in a slightly different way. So I think I uh, did it really, really aggressively. <laughs> At, at points in the first book but I like it it doesn't go over too many people's heads which I appreciate because it definitely has gotten conversations started and then some people who just absolutely won't read the books and that's fine too. <laughs> well I think you absolutely that came through very clear um and thank you for that I think that's so important that there are books that play in that same sandbox without forgetting who's in the sandbox like I think that's so important yeah, and there's so many more, like, I, I have to say, I think the genre is just growing so much, mm -hmm. and more voices are are in it now, more people are telling stories, and the book community, specifically on Book Talk, I think seems to be more appreciative. It's a very different than three years ago, and I'm very appreciative of that. Like, I've seen quite a change on the way people talk about books, and what books tend to get hype. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah. Even since I joined, like, two years ago, it's it's vastly different. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of that is due to authors like you who are loud and center and saying our books are not just unapologetically about us, but they're not completely different. Because I feel like a lot of popular books written by black and brown people in the past have been aggressively othered. Mm -hmm. Now there are authors like yourself who are saying we're going to exist right alongside of you, but you're not going to forget that we're here. And I love that. Yeah, thank you. That was very much what I was trying to do. I also think, thankfully, it's so slow, but I do think the industry is changing a little bit. Like I know as yeah. an Indigenous author, like for such a long time, Indigenous authors seem to only get published if they were telling stories around like high trauma memoir or like fiction had to be about residential schools or the 60s scoop or like the active colonization right after contact. And now I see like people celebrating indigeneity across genres and being really excited. And there's so many, I think of like Stephen Graham Jones or mm -hmm. Rebecca Roanhorse. Like I would have loved to have been able to see authors like that been at like the top of the charts when I was, when I was a teen, but we just weren't. So I'm so glad I get to write in this version of the publishing industry. Yeah, absolutely. And you do it so relatably. And I know like we're talking about how we're seeing the conversation about indigeneity and, and colonization, and, excuse me, and colonization. Um, but even people who don't have trauma in regards to those things are still being able to relate to your story. Um, and I think about, too, in, in Kira's struggle with having to exist in a colonized world as a tool of colonialism, like she's actively oppressing her people against her will and watching her struggle with that internally and seeing that manifest in addiction and depression 
and self-loathing um, and all while she actively fights for her people, I thought was such a beautiful addition to the story. Um, because a lot of times people really moralize with the characters that are fighting colonialism. And you didn't do that. Kira is what I would expect to happen if you spent five or six decades fighting against oppression and your fight only looking like killing people gently. Like, mm-hmm. like and, and seeing that representation of her addiction, of her depression, um, it did something to me. Because I've never seen that before. Like, in most fiction, if you come across someone struggling with addiction, if you come across somebody struggling with depression, they're either a character that I'm supposed to detest or I'm supposed to pity. And I don't, I don't, I don't pity Kira. I'm proud of Kira. I love Kira. I enjoy Kira. Sometimes she pisses me off. I'm not going to lie to you. (laughs) She also pisses me off at times. (laughs) But she's just, she's a person who is feeling the effects of her struggle. And I thought that that was very beautiful. And I'm just wondering, did you wrestle with trying to include that aspect in her story? Um, It definitely took a lot of work. I worked for the first book. I worked really closely with some relatives of mine and then an, um, a, a professional sensitivity reader who has um, past experience with alcoholism um, to really make sure that, you know, when you're bringing in magical elements that you're bringing it in a way that adds to the character and the, the, the relatability that journey and doesn't, mm-hmm you know, try to minimize it or infantilize it in any way. Uh, So in that way, I tried to make sure I had a really good understanding of how it was going to work in the world. The inspiration for Kira definitely came from um, just like having so much experience with uh, people who struggle with addiction in my family. I always struggle in fiction and particularly serialized fiction where alcoholism is used as like this on page metaphor for like I'm really low and then it just disappears Mm -hmm. and it's never brought up it's not like an integral part to someone's character Mm -hmm. and that's not true like that's not what happens when someone is an addict and that certainly isn't what happens when you know your loved one is an addict and you're you're watching them deal with that and you're changing like all of that changes behavior and changes very much how someone goes about protecting themselves, thinking about other people, making their decisions. So I wanted this to be something when I set out with the first book that was going to be an active part of Kira's character all the way through mm-hmm. the story. Like it's it's never not part of her character and it wasn't just going to be the character arc in book one. Yeah. Um, and that was really important to me. And then the inspiration and what I was trying to kind of speak to with her being an assassin who has to kill, you know, other halflings and, um, you know, be the enforcer in a way was I was working in indigenous policy at the time. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. So I, I know the Indian act backwards and forwards and other policies that Canada is currently trying to do in the name of reconciliation. And so much of it is done in this way where, um, you almost make First Nations compete against each other, mm-hmm. even even bands within the same nation. And it's just so disheartening to be in that situation where you're you feel like in some ways, like, am I actually helping my people or am I just helping the federal government colonize more effectively in a modern world? Mm-hmm. Like how how much is this helping? And that was the root of the inspiration with the halfling saga. You have the halfling decree 
uh, at the beginning of book one. Originally, there were several amendments to that decree because book one was a slightly different book. It was a bit of book one and a bit of a prequel. And you would see these amendments, which I based off of the amendments to the Indian Act and how you eventually get to this part, which in this fantasy world is you have you have colonized the indigenous people enough that they are now, you know, your your army mm. against their own people. And what does it feel like to be in that position? Um, wow. So that's where the real world inspiration came from it. And the the moral, like, just living in the gray. And I just was okay just staying in the gray and never really coming mm. to a conclusion. Because how, you know, we've watched Kira now for what I think is 18 months of her life. She has 60 years of doing this beforehand. I don't think any of that's going to get cleared up realistically in that time frame. So I just yeah. didn't push myself to have to do that. That is so... Um... Not only is that so relatable, like it's it's so important, I think, because a lot of resisting colonialism in the real world is as marginalized people unpacking the way that we've been turned into weapons against each other so that we don't unite. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's that's so beautiful, specifically in regards to indigeneity, but also in regards to the, the global struggle against white supremacy and colonialism. And speaking of you had talked a little bit about approaching people like your loved ones. Um, That's one of the things I really loved about your book without spoiling anything, obviously, the way that there are moments where in her struggle with that, which you, I think you very beautifully demonstrated that her struggle was not her fault, that this is the effect of the Mm -hmm. world that she was born and forced to become a weapon in. And that's real. That's so real. But one of the things that I found myself wrestling with in a good way was the response of the people around her where they're saying, hey, I'm not going to let you treat me that way. (laughs) And we're going to have some distance until you stop. But the moment you're ready for help, I'm right here. Um, and I had to put the I had to put two of your books down at certain points when moments like that happen to just reflect on how many times have I been tempted to walk away from someone because they were behaving in a way that they were designed to behave so that we didn't work together. How many times did I walk away mm-hmm. and not show up when they were ready to heal? Not to say that I have a responsibility to, but to say that's a that's a beautiful picture that I think you painted where there are characters that are like, no, we're not going to do this, Kira. And then as soon as Kira is like, OK, I'm sorry. OK, I'm here. Um, I thought that was beautiful. Well, thank you. I tried to work hard on that, too. I think thinking of the different characters, again, I'll try to talk non-spoilerly. <laughs> but um, I think a big part for me, too, was it's so fascinating getting to write characters who live in the Phelan, who yes, are colonized, right? Like they they don't get free access to all of Elvira, Mm -hmm. but they get to live within their culture, within their people, within their language, inside inside the Phelan. And I really had to think about, okay, how would these people react not being disconnected from their culture? Also, they're thousands of years old, so they have some experience. And like how different would they react compared to other people who live in the kingdom with Kira and that for me was Mm -hmm. kind of always going back to that basis as to why some people might still show up for her but be really angry and some people you know are healthy enough and have been able to live healthy enough in their life that they can make that decision of still coming when it hurts because that's that's a really hard thing to do so hard um it's really difficult speaking of how old the characters in Phelan's are um, I found myself kind of grieving as I engaged with those characters because I was like, I can't imagine if when I woke up from 
the weapon I had been turned into. Like if I when I started to realize that I wanted to know who I was, who I was, my culture and my people, I I can't imagine how beneficial that would have been to me if the elders I turned to had existed before it had existed before all of that. Like I was like, what a beautiful gift that I'll never have that none of us will ever have. I found myself grieving at that, um, which made it more beautiful for me. Can you like explain why you wanted that? Um, I think it would have been too hard for me to write a book about all the heavy stuff that I was trying to pack into it and then not have this ability for like, this true hope of they can really reclaim their entire mm. culture. Like it's still, it still is there. Um, because, you know, like before I was in policy, I worked in um, like, I have a graduate degree in linguistics and specifically in language revitalization for indigenous languages. That's what I thought my career trajectory was going to be. And I just remember how hard it was being like when my kugu passed away and knowing like we were only ever able to have really simple conversations because I don't speak Anishinaabemowin fluently and she doesn't speak or she didn't speak English and then watching this like transition happen about like all that knowledge disappearing but then going and working in communities and with nations and talking to people where like they don't have any native speakers left or they have three and I come from one of the strongest like speakers um nations on Turtle Island uh and I just I wanted to give myself a little bit more hope of what we're writing to where like there there's more than a seed and it can be beautiful and they can fight for that and you know hopefully hopefully they get there in book four I don't I don't know I'm just the author I loved it and um Without spoilers, that makes me even more angry at you for some of your choices. <laughs> I just want to say that I really like hearing you talk about it. Um, I love the hope aspect and how like throughout as you were talking about um, the addiction that uh, is in the book that's mentioned as well as um, what you're just talking about now, it is it's even though it's, it can be so dark, you know, colonization, addiction, all of that kind of stuff. Um, you left hope in there. And I just find that so beautiful because, um, you know, I think for BIPOC people in general, things are really dark and it's just beautiful to be able to like, look for hope. Um, and to have that in your book is just wonderful. So, and it really did shine through. And I think, I think one of the things that I, the reasons I say you're one of the best writers that I know is because you were able to make that shine through without stealing from the reality that pain doesn't go away. It doesn't just vanish. Like Mm -hmm. you had characters who struggle with addiction, but then you also had characters who struggle with chronic pain and you didn't paint these as things that were just dispensable to the story. Even though we have plenty of characters who have the ability to heal, those things didn't just go away. They're not something you can gift yourself out of. They're a part of them. And I thought that that was really beautiful. Um, And you already talked about this, but just as I was reading, I just kept thinking to myself, I wonder what she's wanting me to take away in regards to these characters. Like why, why, what is she wanting me to see here? And it was just, it was a beautiful experience to try to get into your head. Um, Because that's part, that's my reading experience. I want to know what, what is this author on right now? What are they doing? Um, (laughs) I also read that way. It's more fun. It is more fun. And I'm glad you're picking up on a lot of it. I mean, especially with like, 
you bring up the chronic pain. There's a lot of like um, disabled characters in the books too, on both sides of the line too, because that was important to me. Mm-hmm. When you see like this individualized colonial kingdom and how they treat disability versus what it looks like in the Phalanx, which is a more community centric yeah. place to live in society, which for me, I just hope springs a little like seed in people if they don't already think about <laughs> disability and the, the social construction of it, that yeah. maybe they walk away from the books thinking of that a little bit more. No, for sure. And I, and I loved too, like that you said on both, on both sides of the line, because a lot of stories that even have disability rep that have, um, marginalized rep at all you only really see that on the moral side of the line um you're never Mm. gonna you're never gonna run into a character that's a part of the oppressive class who's marginalized but you did that there are um especially um in your bonus moment i i really loved that i I was i'm not gonna spoil anything i'm not gonna tell him anything but i really loved what you did there um even though i was done at that point and i was like we're not even friends anymore so why am i reading this bonus chapter um I had already texted you and said friendship over. Um, but speaking of spoilers, since we're not going to give any, um, is there anything you're allowed to tell us that no one else knows yet? I'm trying to get you in trouble today. I can say that I have been Easter egging over on my Instagram in regards to what the title and um, cover book for might be. And no one's picking up on it. So I'm having so much fun doing that. Well, I need to go figure that out before Elle does. But yeah, the other thing, I guess... To clarify, would be that book four is the final book <laughs> in the saga. It will be the end of the story. Um, but there there may be a prequel. I'm pushing really hard for a prequel because I have it I have it sitting on my computer. So. It's already written? Yeah, I wrote A Broken Blade and the prequel simultaneously. Okay. Because I had to untease them. Mm. And then um, yeah, so it's been there. It's been there for a hot minute. Well, if you accidentally email that to me, I will not get mad at you. <laughs> So many people want that prequel so bad. <laughs> I like it. It's a it's a very different Kira, right? Because it's a Kira that before it, this isn't really a spoiler. It's Kira getting trained oh. um, as an assassin. Yeah, so you get to see that entire journey up until the day she earns her hood. Um, so for those who have read A Broken Blade and A Shadow Crown, you'll kind of know what story that is. Um, but that's interesting because then you get to play with a character who is actively making the decisions where mm. Kira's kind of already settled in some of those decisions by the time we meet her in a broken blade. Yeah. The other big question I have about your series, this is perhaps the most important to me. Um, I have my favorite character. I have my character that I think you should delete by the end of the series. Um, who is your favorite character and the character that you detest? Not counting Kira. Oh, Kira's definitely not my favorite character. <laughs> I spend way too much time in that woman's head. Uh, my favorite, I'm trying to struggle because there's one that's obviously a favorite to write, but I think my favorite overall character is Gerarda. Um, okay. I love Gerarda. Uh, a character I really don't like. You I love mean, them all? I mean, I want to say Damien. That's a given. Um, if you like Damien, you need help. Yeah, I find... Um, <laughs> I find Killian really hard to write. Yeah, he's an unlikable person. <laughs> um, I think my answers are actually the same because, but I didn't like Gerarda until this book, until yeah, book three. And that's intentional. So that's why when I used to say that, people would be like, why on earth? And I'm like, you don't even know who Gerarda is yet. Just wait. 
But I also cannot remember the character's name. Um, but I also love um, all of their trainer's wife. Oh, uh, Mara. Love her so much. Yeah. Yeah, love she's so awesome. Um, and I, Killian, yeah, I think I, I, I think I hate Riven more, though. I love how you hate both love interests. That's Michael. Michael doesn't like love books. That is not true. Okay, it's a little true, but we're not going to talk about it. But while we're here, you and I have kind of bonded over our love of indie books and indie authors. And I just am kind of curious, who are your favorites? Who are the people out here who are killing it in the indie space? Thea Smith writes indigenous fiction and has, she's hybrid. And then, um, you know, who just posted a video. We'll give me the name. See, this is how my brain works. It's all visuals. So No, me too. I can't like people ask me author names and I'm like, uh, or book title names is worse. Oh yeah. Alison Cochran. I like, I like for sapphic. Sweet. So speaking of indie authors, um, you are now traditionally published, but you were an indie author and without an agent. So tell us, what did you do earlier in your process to kind of like market yourself and what would you tell um, other authors who are trying to break into the industry um, and don't really know much about marketing at all? This is a funny question for me to answer because my entire marketing strategy for Broken Blade was to not tell anyone I wrote it. Um, Because I I was a book influencer. I was on TikTok. I was talking about indigenous books and stuff. And then I kind of got the idea to do it. And I also got the idea to release it anonymously. So I didn't talk about my writing at all until I was out as an author. Um, I'm doing it now because <laughs> uh, I'm going I'm going hybrid. So I have I have an indigenous sapphic romance coming out at the end of this year, and I'm self-publishing that. And uh, to all the authors, what I can say is give yourself more time than you think you'll need. Mm. <laughs> you know, six months sounds like a long time to market a book before it comes out. It's really not. It's going to go quickly, but trust me, it'll help. Um, and if you feel overwhelmed uh, and like it's a lot of work, just know that's a perfectly valid feeling because it is overwhelming and it is a lot of work. Absolutely. Um, but key marketing tactics I can't really give because I can't repeat what I did with the last one. And I'm just kind of starting my marketing kickoff for the next one. You know, and it's so funny too, because I remember hearing about you doing that. This is long after you had done it though, but people told me about it. I think it was Elle who told me actually. And I remember thinking, I freaking wish I had done that. Like, I wish I had thought of that. <laughs> so many people tell me this. <laughs> it's so brilliant. And like, it would, it would, I mean, it would still work, but it wouldn't be as cool now. I think one person has tried to do it. I don't know how it went over. Oh, I'm going to have to find them. I think there was another, like maybe a year and a half after. Um, I remember seeing an article about it. If I ever did that, it would be because I wrote some kind of smut because no one would ever guess it was me. Like if I just wrote something that is just filthy, I would do that. But then I might never own up to it, to be honest. <laughs> that's, that's how I felt when I first put out the book. I was like, well, if people hate it, I don't ever have to reveal myself. I'll just disappear. I'll become one of those like urban legends on TikTok. And no one will ever know. <laughs> Honestly, that would be so funny. And and speaking of that, and and part of it is because you were already in this space before you put out the book. But part of it is also the way that you engage as an author. You have a really good relationship 
with book talkers, with bookish influencers. Um, and I kind of wanted to ask you, how important do you think it is that authors have a good relationship with bookish influencers, or do you think it's not important? But also, you want to talk a little bit about how you engage with the space? Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, I think it's deeply important just because I love this space. And I think it's so great, not only like to help my own book sales, but to help indigenous and like BIPOC books in general. So I, whatever I can do to help that space grow and put eyes on it, I'm going to do it. Um, and that's really important to me. For other authors, you know, maybe that's not something that's important to them. And I wouldn't push anyone to be on social media or try to engaging with influencers unless they mm -hmm. really want to. And they're, they're really good at um, boundary setting. I think I'm really grateful yes. that I had a full year and a half of being a reader and a reviewer, even though I never t did negative reviews on my, um, on my TikTok. It was just never content I put out. Um, I'm just glad that I got to interact in that space as not an author really got to see, you know, what felt okay as a reviewer personally, because that's just like such a good moral compass for how I go and engage, um, with other book talk, you know, influencers or anyone, you know, everyone's just here to read and have a good time. And then in cases yeah. where I feel like I do need to say something, you know, there's been, there's been a few times, uh, where I've gotten on and been like, no, this you know, this isn't okay, or this particular book, or, you know, this particular thing. I know there was, <laughs> there have been questions about, um, you know, just like, authenticity, I think, with me around indigeneity and queerness. And, you know, sometimes people can feel like, because they read your book, you, they are deserving of a lot of information. And I'm really yeah. grateful that I, I knew what was normal <laughs> on the other side to know that like, okay, I can put this boundary down as an author and also don't engage with reviews unless you're actively being tagged and brought into the conversation. Don't engage yeah. in book talk discourse unless you're actively part of the conversation, which for me has been such a great, like, it's so, it's so strong in me. And I can only like extend that advice to other authors because it, it'll really bring you less stress. Like, I don't read any of my reviews and honestly mm -hmm. I don't have any stress compared to some authors I hear talking about their reviews like they just no, don't real. exist to me Goodreads is not for me <laughs> you know like yeah and that makes complete sense like all of that does and like I, I I can relate to that I I do lean more towards the bookish and reader side than the author side because I don't I don't I don't care as much about that, but I, I, I find myself grateful for having access to that side of it and to know where it would be weird yeah. for me to speak and do things. It's, it's very, it's very good. And where can our, I'll work on the people that are listening, find you, what platforms are you on and what are the usernames they can find you uh, at? I'm on TikTok and Instagram at Melissa's doc bookshelf. And that's basically where I'm most active. I post on there all the time. Okay. Um, and yeah, can come see my videos on TikTok. If you need to DM me, DM me on Instagram, uh, cause TikTok never shows me my DMs. So DM me over there. <laughs> Unless we're mutuals, I don't see messages. I don't know why, but that's how it is. That's so funny. 
Uh, well, thank you so much for being with us. I, I don't know about, about you two, but I really enjoyed this conversation. I did too. To everybody listening, as always, we appreciate you so much. We could not do this without you. Thank you so much for being here, and we look forward to being a menace next time. <laughs>